Okay, so we're taking a one-week break from our uh, series that's called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel, which we're into uh, week 63 on that one, and we'll be back to that next Sunday. The reason for that is because Wright State is starting back up in a couple weeks, and we have decided... um, We've been thinking about starting a Sunday or a Tuesday night or midweek service here at the church, but we've decided that we don't really have the manpower to do all of that with worship and so forth. So we decided to continue the Wright State Bible study, which we had up to about 20 people coming to last year. And I'm really trying by today's message uh, to, and in fact, Josiah, we definitely, you know, I want 10 or 20. CDs of this made right away after church with the outlines in them because I'm really wanting to see if we can't get more people coming to Wright State on Tuesday nights. It doesn't have to be for Wright State students. If you want to understand what our church is about and what our vision is and where we're tr- what we're trying to do here at Grace Christian Fellowship, this is one of the two best series I do to understand that. The best series may be the Kingdom of God series, or it may be this one, which is called The Restoration of Biblical Christianity. Today's message is the the introduction to that called Rediscovering and Restoring His Pattern. Now, I sometimes like to put in brackets an alternate word just to make you think more deeply about the word. So when we're talking about rediscovering, we're talking about rethinking. What we're saying here at Grace Christian Fellowship is that uh, probably somewhere around 95% of Protestant Christians took some wrong terms, biblically and the terms, I should say, in terms of how they view Scripture shortly after the Civil War in America when what was known as the modernist uh, fundamentalist controversy developed. And by the 1890s to 1920s, among conservative Protestant Christians... And well, among liberals as well, two brand new modern ways of looking at the Bible that no Christians had ever looked at the Bible that way developed, and they developed so strongly that they uh, are actually the paradigms that most Catholic priests use. They, most Catholic priests use the paradigms of the liberal modernist thinking, and Protestantism is split into two camps the liberal or modernist evolutionary anti-supernatural God doesn't do these things today and the Bible is just full of myths and stories and Jesus didn't really rise from the dead and he wasn't really born of a virgin and uh, what you read about in Genesis 1 through 11 and even on into Genesis 12 with Abraham is all just stories. But then the fundamentalists tried to counteract that but instead of saying, well, how would the apostles have have, uh, how did they meet these challenges? How has the church met these challenges through the centuries? They came up with all new ways of looking at Scripture that no Christians had ever believed before. And these, uh, these ways of looking at, at Scripture became known as things like dispensationalism, antinomianism, hyper, uh, pre, hyper-premillennial, or some people will say dispensational premillennialism, and part of that was a uh, kind of a negation of the doctrine of the church in favor of the, the enthronement of the radical conversion of one person and what's in it for you. And so the average Christian even today uh, relates to their church 
in terms of what's it doing for me instead of how can I be discipled and trained to be part of the mission of Jesus Christ and learn how to be part of the church's mission to minister to God, to edify one another, and to disciple the lost. And is my church, you know, so what we've turned, what we have today is the biggest churches have the best speakers and the best worship bands and the best lighting and, and so forth, and not in terms of the Spirit of God, but in terms of Hollywood standards. And I, we go as just one more form of our entertainment. Sunday mornings are religious consumer entertainment. And we might serve in a Sunday school class or some minor way, but we're not being, we're not taking our whole approach to church is how can I be a part of a missionary community that's building depth of ministry to God, depth of ministry and community to each other, sharing the life of the Trinity in the church, strong and healthy biblical families, and, and, uh, and everyone becoming a minister. Everyone. Everyone walking holy unto the Lord. Everyone full of knowledge and wisdom. Everyone using their gifts uh, to drive back the kingdom of darkness. And there, we don't even have a vision today that the church is here to liberate the planet. We have a vision that Christ is going to come back to liberate us because we can't stand it anymore because the darkness is so strong and we're so wimpy. So all of this has led to the, uh, we've gone from, uh, in, especially in America, we've gone from one of the most Christianized cultures in the history of the world to one of the most anti-Christian, secular, humanistic, uh, amoral, lost cultures in the history of the world in a little over a generation's time. And this is not a sign of the end times. This is a sign of the wrong message in the church. And trying to wake people up to that, how you dare you rupture my rapture. I was hoping to escape. I'll never forget, like I had just got baptized in the Spirit. I was 17 years old, and I just had gotten delivered from demons for the first time or two. And I was like totally full of the power of the Holy Spirit, and I was reading scripture like eight or ten hours a day, and I was so excited, and I had this sense that, wow, we're going to be part of a worldwide movement that's going to liberate this planet. And, uh, you know, I went to the grocery store, and I ran into a dear old Pentecostal lady that uh, my parents were friends with, and and she grabbed my arm, and she said, how's it going, Brother Greg? And I said, great, Mrs. Perrow. She said, well, I said, how are you doing? She goes, I sure hope Jesus is coming back in the next week or two because I don't know how much longer I can hold on. And I'm like, wow, I want some of that. <laughs> you know, like I've seen from me, I told the waiter, I'll have whatever she's having. No, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, what? So, um, you know, this is the predicament we find ourselves in. And what you find is there are movements all over this country that are restoring a piece of it. And sometimes there's movements that are so good that they're restoring a couple pieces of it. But what God has in mind is what he said at the Last Supper, John's version, when the Holy Spirit comes, 
he will lead you and guide you into all the truth. All the truth. And all means all. Pos is the Greek word. It means every truth. All the categories of truth. Each and every way of thinking about truth. Where the church is no longer going to be blind to its inheritance, to its mission, to its structure, to its government, uh, to its way of life, to ancient liturgies, or anything missing. God intends the purpose of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that has been unprecedented in the last 115 years has been interpreted falsely to just believe we're supposed to have a little bit more exciting worship and do miracles in third world countries, but not here. And uh, that's, God has much more in mind. He's here to, to basically say to the devil and his kingdom, are you ready to surrender yet, or shall we keep beating you back? Do you say uncle yet? God, the church is going to be restored until more and more enemies of God, starting with human hearts, tap out. That's, what it, that's how you become a Christian. You're running from God. You're fighting every idea of God. You hate God. You post things on Facebook against God and where everything else. And then finally when God gets you cornered, you say, okay, I surrender. Come into my life, Jesus. And then you stand up in church and go, I've been seeking for truth for 100 years. And last night I found the Lord. Liar. <laughs> You've been running from God for 100 years. And last night you finally surrendered. And God started the right direction for a change. So this is what we are looking at in this series, the restoration of biblical Christianity. We want to do a rethink as a preliminary step to a restore. And Jesus made it very clear, you cannot put new wine in old wineskins. If we don't rethink the church and do church differently then we will waste everything God is doing. There's no point in praying for an outpouring of his spirit or a revival in today's contemporary Christianity because we've had one revival after another since the Great Awakening in America, and we've had unprecedented outpourings of the Holy Spirit in the last uh, 50 years, and all of them have been lost because they haven't been poured into the right wineskins. And each move of God since the Great Awakening, has touched more people with less long-lasting results because the wine is being spilled. And we can't just pray, God, send your spirit in revival as lots of Christians are praying because that's like saying, you know, I've got this bucket full of holes and I'm praying that God will pour some water into it. Maybe he's waiting for us to fix the bucket first. All right, so let's look at this. Acts 3, 19 to 21 is one of our theme verses. And he uh, basically says that uh, heaven must receive Jesus Christ. Guess what? He's not coming back until the period of restoration of all things of which we're in the middle of. It started 2,000 years ago, and let me tell you, because of the outpouring of the Spirit in the last century and a half, within the next generation or two, lots of people are going to start realizing the, biggest, the bigger ramifications of it and hearing what we're trying to say. 
There's a, uh, one or two here or there throughout the world today, but not many. But there will be many. There will be hundreds that realize, wait a minute, the Holy Spirit has come in greater power to cause us to do a rethink of everything and to start over and rebuild from scratch and do it his way instead of our way. Now, the, the last word in the title, pattern, is very important because in the Bible, there are patterns. And what we have today is modernized thinking about everything, the church, the family, uh, what it means to be saved, and so forth. We have all kinds of modernized patterns, but we don't have any biblical patterns. We make decisions, not disciples. I put very little weight. I pray the sinner's prayer with people. Usually when I'm having a Bible study with someone, over the first year or so, I pray the sinner's prayer with them 10 or 20 or 30 times. <laughs> I don't put much weight on it until it starts to become that their life turns, that real repentance is granted to them, and they become a seeker of Jesus, a follower, having true faith. That's what we're trying to address in this entire series called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. Getting people to pray a sinner's prayer was never a goal. No one ever even heard of it till the 19th century. No one ever heard of a sinner's prayer till then. Thank you, Charles. It was great to read. All right, Isaiah 58. Those from among you. Now, there's really not a lot of good English translations. Look at some Jewish translations. But it's actually saying that um, in the Jewish uh, Hebrew scriptures, it's actually saying that those people who are become your spiritual children, your progeny, which will hopefully include your natural children. It's a wonderful thing when your natural children also become your spiritual children and they become your true sons and daughters in the faith. But he's saying your sons and your daughters, like Timothy was to Paul, like Titus was to Paul, those people will rise up and rebuild the ancient ruins. Because the foundations of, of how the apostles approached the New and Old Testaments is still in there. And we can find it. And you'll raise up the age-old foundations. It won't just be theoretical. You'll relay the foundation. You'll repair the breach. You'll be the restorer of the streets in which the body of Christ is supposed to have the Holy Spirit dwelling powerfully and actively among us. And if you haven't read Gordon Fee's, I'm sure no one has beside me probably at this point, the Paul, the Spirit, and the people of God, he documents from every scripture Paul says that any understanding of the Holy Spirit that doesn't have miracles, tangible, concrete manifestations, any understanding of the church that it's just a theoretical Holy Spirit we received at, at conversion is not what Paul was talking about. It's, a, it's not a biblical, uh, it's a disaster, frankly. It's what we have today. We have theoretical conversions and conceptual conversions without tangible, manifest, experiential presence of the Holy Spirit in ways that you can, when the Holy Spirit is manifest, you can't see the wind, but you can see the trees, leaves rustle. You can see the gifts, you can see the fruits, you can see the healings, you can see the deliverances. 
You can see the things the Holy Spirit is doing, and you can even look in people's lives and hearts and say, wow, I used to know this guy, and he was struggling with this, that, and the other thing, and this guy is like a complete new person. Who is this new person? They're nothing like they were when we started with them. And that should be the testimony of every real born-again Christian. Man, if I keep preaching my introduction, I'm going to run out of time. To... So let's try to get into this. Um, I just want to give us a few examples of why we need to restore biblical perspective. You know, a lot of us, I know myself, I, there's a few guys in our church that are uh, interested in military history. I, in undergraduate school and when I got my master's in history, I avoided the military history classes altogether. I was interested in what led up to the War of Independence and what came out of it, but I wasn't interested in studying the strategies of the battles. That just wasn't my interest. And so uh, there was a long time when I'd read the Bible and I'd see two armies coming together in hand-to-hand combat, and then it would say the Lord routed the Israelites that day because of their sin or vice versa, the Israelites routed their enemies. And the one army lost 38 people, and the other army lost 23,000 people. And I go, how could that be in hand-to-hand combat? You know, like you'd expect a kind of a bloodbath on both sides, right? Well, the, the reason it can be is the first army that gets full of unbelief and fear and begins to doubt that they can win, they turn their back on the battle and run. And the other army... The only restraint on them after that is how much endurance do they have to keep chasing them down and stabbing them in the back and killing them? Another one, another one, another one. Can we take a break yet? No, not not until you wipe them all out. So what we once we began to turn the church around 125 years ago or so, We have given birth to the greatest secular culture in the history of the world that hates God the most. And if we don't do something about it soon, your children are going to get arrested for their faith. In America. Because the legal groundwork in Supreme Court decisions has already been laid for all that. And America is no longer Christendom Christendom in any way, shape, or form. It's the Mecca of paganism. It is Caesarea Philippi. Jesus took the disciples to Caesarea Philippi because it was the seat of the cult of, of, of emperor worship and of worship of the god, god Pan and of every pagan thing. And it was where Herod... And the Herod's descendants ruled Galilee, Judea, and so forth from. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to take you right to the gates of the enemy because you're going to take the attack to them. And they're the ones going to be fleeing from the battle. And until that's the case, then we don't have any kind of biblical Christianity. We should quit saying we believe in the Bible because we have no intention of doing it. Man, must have been a good dinner last night or something. Uh, 
All right, so Acts 17. Listen to me. In Acts 17, we're talking about less than one generation from the day of Pentecost. We're talking about a period of time that's probably in the neighborhood of 25 to 30 years. 20 to 30 years, because I haven't really thought through the dating on that in a while. So just to be in the safe side. And the, there, a riot breaks out, and they accuse Paul and Jason and Silas and Barnabas and these guys. They say, these people who've turned the whole world upside down have come here also. And they're destroying our idol-worshiping society, which is the, you know, we make idols for profit. They're cutting into the corporate bottom line. People are buying differently because of their Christianity. That's how you know you really get saved. You don't buy nor want the same things you used to want because your affections have been saved. And you start thinking, gee, I could spend this $1,000 on this or I could invest it in a way that's going to further Christ's kingdom. Maybe I don't need the latest computer or the coolest car or the best stereo or whatever. Maybe that is money that I could sow toward the, toward the war cause. These people have turned the world upside down. Now, any, any, any casual study of church history, we're about to start our church history class in mid-October. Please buy plain, church history in plain language. You must get the fourth edition by, uh, I'm forgetting the guy. Bruce Shelley, uh, it's the one with a, with a, that's been updated by a guy named Arl Hack, Hackett or Hatchet or something like that. And uh, don't get any of the first three editions, that won't do you any good. But we're going we're gonna to kind of understand some of this stuff a little better. You know, uh, the church entered a culture very similar to what we're up against. But because they had the real thing and we don't, they won. And we are losing big. Most estimates are anywhere from 4 to 10% of people under 30 attend church in America today. And most people under 30 that attend church are going, you know, like little Jesus concerts and little Jesus sayings, but they're still internet porn addicted and they're not really, they haven't actually read whole books of the Bible and they're not really disciples. They're just kind of a little bit of religiousness. That's like 90 some percent of the average Christian. I hardly ever meet anyone who's ever done any serious study of their faith. Even among pastors, pastors meetings. Salt and light from the Sermon on the Mountain. Uh, that has long been considered. The dispensationalists changed it to, to having to do with the millennium. But we don't have to follow the Sermon on the Mount now because that's for the next dispensation after Christ comes back because the standards of discipleship in the Sermon on the Mount are much too high for us to consider realistically following it now. But the church had always taught that that's the introductory teachings to what it means to be a follower of Christ. It's not for the future. It's for today and yesterday and tomorrow. 
and he's right in the middle of it. He's talking in the plural you. If you study verbs, there's first person, second person, third person, singular, and plural, right? So it's second person plural. He's saying y'all. If he was if he was in King James English or Southern or something, he would have said y'all. Y'all are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Now, two things that, that prove that I'm right are just take that seriously. Salt stops corruption. Before refrigeration, salt, the reason Salzburg, which we're going to get to visit next summer, uh, and, and hear some great Mozart music and, and so forth, uh, on our way to Vienna to hear Beethoven music, which will be even cooler. Um, the, the reason Salzburg was so prosperous was because it was where they mined salt. And there he used to be even a saying, he's not worth his salt. Which meant he's not worth what we're paying. They would actually pay wages in salt. How'd you like that? Time Warner. Here's, here's like a whole case of Morton salt. <laughs> I'd rather have the paycheck, thank you very much. But, um, <laughs> you know, because salt was that valuable. Because you couldn't just stick something in the refrigerator and eat it a week later. It would be, it would be ruined in a day or two if it wasn't salted. Salt stops corruption, and it's very valuable. And Jesus says if the, if the church loses its salt, it's good for nothing except to be trampled underfoot by men, which is what we've had the last 150 years or so. The church is increasingly getting the crap knocked out of it by the world's culture. And, they're pay- and most Christians are like, oh, those worldly people are so bad in the way they cuss and swear and put all kind of test- stuff on television. Why do you even know what they do? Let's be about what we're doing. Because Jesus is clearly saying it's our fault. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Pagan, don't, people are always so surprised when pagans act pagan and when sinners sin. Why would you be surprised? Everyone does that which comes out of their nature. What you should be shocked at is when Christians sin. You should be what? That Christian has a problem with internet pornography? What the heck are you talking about? That can't possibly be. Can fresh water come out of salt water fountain? And can salt water come out of a fresh water fountain? That's nonsense. How can a Christian be addicted to alcohol or, or what have you? Or How can they not know their Bible? How can they be so spiritually anemic that they don't spend time alone in God, working out with just being alone with God? Why is their spiritual man look like some kind of documentary about what people look like when they come out of, you know, prisoner of war camps and have been starved to death. If you could see in the spirit, most Christian spirits look like that. They really do. It, it's enough to make you want to cry. Most Christians are malnourished and starving for any kind of word with content. And they can't, you know, they're like, you know, I'm 60-some years old now. Not quite. I'm B60. And I lift all these little dumbbells. <laughs> and you young guys would be like, are you kidding? What the heck? Most Christians are lit, like working out with one-pound weights and three-pounders. <laughs> really? 
All right, so lights. I don't know about you, but I have very controlled lighting. I have over 200 light fixtures in my house, and they all have various purposes and dimmers and so forth because I want just enough light to not stub my toe on the bathroom, but I don't want the light to bother me. I, everything is controlled light-wise. You know, people are looking for light, and nobody, there's, you can't find one secular news outlet, one university, one uh, think tank that's saying, let's ask the Christians what the answer is. Because our marriages are as bad as theirs, our credit card debt is as high as theirs, our level of internet porn addiction is as high as theirs, and everything else. They're not saying, hey, maybe those people have the answers. Just look at how good their kids are turning out. Look at the way they love each other. Don't want to get me started on that one. Man, I got to hurry. Okay, Matthew 16, gates are for defense. We kind of touched on that already, so let's move on. You know, the church is supposed to be knocking back the gates of hell, liberating the world. And we're living in a, in a virtual pagan revival. Human trafficking, culture of divorce, paganism, witchcraft, addictions, everything. And all kinds of cultural outworkings of that. Now, my last exhortation in this first point is being noble-minded like the Thessalonians. If you're going to do anything for God, you're going to have to hear some things you never thought about before. And you're going to have to get past, I wasn't brought up that way. Or that doesn't doesn't feel that comfortable. What you've got to ask, is this the word of God and is this biblical? And if so, let's get lined up with it instead of what we're used to. Who cares what we're used to? Second Roman numeral, rediscovering the pattern. All through the Bible, there are patterns. The first uh, point A there, 1 Chronicles 13, 1 through 10, combined with 1 Chronicles 15, 13, is simply this. They brought the ark, symbolic of the presence of God, back from the Philistines, which had been lost in the third or so chapter of 1 Samuel. They brought it back to Israel, but because they didn't know the Bible, they, the Philistines had sent it back on a cart, which is not how God told us to carry his presence. And that's exactly what we have today. We have all kinds of modern ideas about how to have a spirit-filled church and spirit-filled worship and, and, and so forth, but we haven't really thought deeply about the pattern of biblical Christianity. And most of the best Christians I know who even have good anointing in their worship and stuff know about like one-tenth as much as they need to know just to get started in the Lord about what you should learn the first year of being a Christian. And I'm not against the church. I'm passionate for the church. You know, that was something I learned in business. There are those who are criticizers in the organization that are just have self-promoting agendas of criticism, and those who are criticizers because they're passionate that the organization would work and do well. And as a manager, you have to decide under those under you what's the attitude they're coming from. When they say we ought to do this better 
Is it because they really care about the company and they think we ought to be doing it better? We have to do things completely different. The next point there at the bottom of the page, there's, which is in Isaiah 25, 8 and 9 and 40, then quoted again, if you flip over in Hebrews 8, 5 and Hebrews, Acts 7, 44, Stephen quoted this to the Sanhedrin just before he got stoned to death. And you might as well be prepared for that. It's always the religious people that resist what God's trying to do. You just got to know that. You're gonna get the, we're not going to get the most opposition from the pagans. It's going to be Christians that hate whatever God's doing. And that will have the most accusations against us from the Christians. That's just always what happens when God's restoring things. But we are told to see to it that we build according to the pattern. And that's what we're doing in this series. That's what we're, that is what Grace Christian Fellowship is all about. You cannot take new wine and put it in old wineskins. You can't put a, a patch of unshrunk cloth on a, on a rip and go, oh, I'm praying for my pastor to come around about this issue. You know what? If they're not going to rethink everything and take that seriously and rebuild completely, you don't belong there. Because you can't, can, it can't be contained by old wineskins. We have to get back to a biblical way of approaching Scripture, a biblical approach to experiencing the Holy Spirit and having the Holy Spirit's presence in our midst in a biblical way of doing church from everything to what we do on the Lord's Day and how we approach the Lord's Day, most Christians don't even know that they're supposed to honor the Lord's Day. And they miss for volleyball tournaments and vacations, every other thing you can imagine. The sun was in my eyes, it snowed a little. What have you. The church is God's temple or tabernacle. So, if you understand biblical things, you'll understand this. The Bible starts with a temple or a tabernacle. And that temple or tabernacle is in God's presence, a place that most people call heaven. And he decides that he wants to create a thing called earth full of people. And he wants to fill that earth and those people with the same presence and the same fullness of his tabernacle and the kingdom of heaven is where he lives. And that was his intention in the Garden of Eden, and that's why they were told to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth, and that's why there were four rivers going to the four corners of the earth. That's symbolic of taking over the whole earth. Man fell from that mission, but God never changes his plan. His plan is an eternal decree, and he will not be thwarted. And so he told M Moses to build a tabernacle, and eventually David and Solomon to build a temple, and then they rebuilt the temple in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then John chapter 1 says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, is the Greek. The temple was Jesus. That's why Jesus said all those other temples were just a foreshadowing of the, the real temples in your midst now. And I'm telling you, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. 
And because religious people never can hear what Scripture is actually saying, they said, it took 40 years for Herod and, and the wicked Romans to build this temple for us. You're going to rebuild it in three days? Who do you think you are, the son of God or something? Well, now that you mention it. And then he labored in his last address to his disciples before his crucifixion, called the, sermon, uh, called the uh, Last Supper, John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16. And then in his last address, just before the ascension, to say, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and you're going to be the temple. And the thing that I was intending to do when I created man, the church is now going to do. You're go it's going to be the beginning of the last days. And the last days will be completed when the whole earth is filled with temples in every tribe, tongue, city, nation, suburb, outlying country place, all worshiping, loving, and glorifying God and living according to his pattern that he intended from all eternity. And that's when I'll come back to receive a kingdom that's been prepared for me. And the truth is, we're living in a time just like in Matthew and God's covenant lawsuit when the people of God are saying, we will not have this man rule over us. We want to speak in tongues or have good worship or we want this part. We, we have like every Christian is going through the a la carte line of God deciding which truths they want and which truths they don't want. You know, I kind of like this church because it has good anointing in the worship, but I'm not giving up my sins for it. I'm not going to actually get serious about studying the Bible, so... <laughs> You know, I, I, I want God to be how I want him to be. I want to remake him in my image, my fallen image. And the problem is he's God. He doesn't change. And you either get with his program or you don't. Nations, peoples, individuals, families, you can't break God's laws. His laws will break you. Your sin will find you out. So Christ is our ultimate pattern. John 13. You call for I give you an example, which in the Greek means a pattern. First Peter says that Christ suffered. No one preaches about suffering anymore. That wouldn't sell much. How could I have a TV show or a radio show if I'm gonna tell you you're gonna, you know, the guy who died is gonna has come to live inside you and he's gonna kill you. <laughs> and every promise in the book is yours. He's going to kill you. <laughs> Praise you, Jesus. Oh, that's such a popular message. You mean, yes, I'm predicting, the, you know, like Mr. T, what's your prediction of the future? Pain. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm predicting you're going to die so that you may live. And that you're, what you have to do is consider Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the shame and humility of the cross. You know, how, how good are you at when you're right, but God says, don't let them know you're right. You know, most of us bleed like some cheap Western that, you know, they used to have these things called the spaghetti Westerns that they would low budget make these Westerns in, uh, in uh, Italy. And uh, 
because it was cheaper than making them in Hollywood, and, and they were kind of cheap, cheap plots and cheap characters. And like when you get shot, you like die for like thirty seconds. Oh, like most of us have. God's called me to die, <laughs> brother Greg. It's really bad this time. I'm gonna actually have to. He's calling me to just hit my snooze alarm twice instead of seven times in the morning. But isn't seven the number of biblical perfection, Brother Greg? <laughs> you know. I, I had Stephen get me a new alarm clock, and it's, it's like a biblical alarm clock. It starts off slow, and then it just keeps mounting until you, you can't ignore it anymore. It's like, I like it. <laughs> Finally, it starts yelling at you. What are you doing? Still sleeping? <laughs> you know. Awake, go sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> okay. So, we have to re-examine everything. That's the purpose for the Spirit of Truth coming. Now, Roman numeral three is fifteen things that we're going to be doing in this ser- series on Tuesday nights. We started last year, and we covered the first four of these last year. I am going to be asking uh, John and Emily to make this a separate category on the podcast just for this series, and we are going to record them like this so that people who don't come can listen to them, and you can always email Stephen. I put his email down at the bottom of point Roman numeral four there, request outlines. Uh, And you can follow this series if you can't come on Tuesday nights. But I would encourage you that you don't know what our church is about if you don't understand our Kingdom of God series and you don't understand this series. So this this fall at Wright State, we're going to look at the Word of God. And we're not going to be just saying you should read your Bible more, but we're going to understand how modern ways of looking at the Bible among conservative Bible-believing Christians, have gutted the whole message of the Bible. Do you know, I was just sharing with somebody, uh, Bible, in one-on-one Bible study, I think it was Thursday night after the Wright State thing, or the Wright Brothers thing, and we were down in the basement going through things, and he said, well, what is Matthew all about? So I just took him through the thing that Luke and Matthew are both all about, Jesus' covenant lawsuit against Israel. And, we, and he said, I said, even all the parables. Just I said, you pick any random parable, and I'll show you how it was part of God's. And by the end of the discussion, he thought, wow, I've gone to Bible-believing churches all my life. This is clearly the message of Matthew, and nobody ever told me. And I'll tell you, I, I first discovered this, what the main message of Matthew was in 1998. My boss was a little mad at me because I was so excited about it. I took four-hour lunches every day for like three months studying Matthew. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry if my sales are off a little bit because I'm reading Matthew, man. It's awesome. And I finally get it. This, I've been robbed. This is what Matthew's actually all about. It has nothing to do with what modern people think Matthew's all about. And I'd been a Christian at that point for uh, 24 years, and I was in probably somewhere between 75 and 100th time I read the book of Matthew. 
And finally, I understood it as one book from one God through one human author that he sanctified and, and was his disciple that had one central message. Man, I, my Bible looked like Beth's after I was done. It was like all kind of cross-references, and I had 1A, 2A, and outlines going on in the margins, and Greek words, and, and uh, I was like, I don't even know Beth yet. But, you know, <laughs> but uh, you know, get me some Post-it notes. <laughs> and uh, So uh, uh, that's what we're going to be doing in this series. We're going to be looking at these 15 emphases that are listed in Roman uh, numeral 3. I will probably privately with Stephen or Josiah record a little introduction to each of the 15. For instance, number one, loving God. We did that four or five weeks. Do you know, like in America, just to take that one as an example, we have degenerated love into like, I, we have bumper stickers. I love Jesus. I love peanut butter and I love pizza. You know, like, you know, people have, I love something to do with Jesus and something Jesus hates on the same car. You know, like, well, whose side are you on? You know, it's like, and, you know, love has become this nebulous, vague, abstract thing. The Bible teaches us a lot that you can use to know whether you actually love God or not. And we spent four or five weeks studying what the Bible teaches about loving God from cover to cover. That was just the first emphasis. And what that led us to was the second emphasis, where because if you really study what the Bible says about loving God, you'll finally go, wow, I don't love God very much at all. And that's when you're beginning to be ready to hear about grace. So then we did about five weeks on grace, which was a shorter summary of what we covered in the 16-part series called Grace Upon Grace, which is on our podcast. And uh, because guess what? Loving God isn't difficult. It's impossible. You have to be recreated by grace working through faith and you have to develop all new affections and all new emotions and, and begin to re sift through what you love and what you hate and what you're about and what your priorities are. And, you know, and, and, and about everything, about relationships, about cars, about clothes, about vocation, about having a pet or not having a pet. You got to rethink loving what it means to love God about everything. Because how can you love God if you don't love your brother? Do you, do you run from confrontation? Do you allow things to go in your, in your relationships in the church that aren't good and aren't loving? Well, then don't think you love God. Because how can you love God whom you have not seen if you don't love your brother or sister who you have seen? The Bible will help you see what it means to love God. And then you'll be driven to find the grace to do it. Amen.